Psalm 67 for our Bible study as we continue working our way through the Psalms. All right, so start with our summary. Psalm 67 looks forward to God's covenant blessings on Israel that makes his salvation known to all ends of the earth. I'll go over that one more time. Psalm 67 looks forward to God's covenant blessings on Israel that makes his salvation known to all ends of the earth. The outline for this psalm is three parts. So verses 1 to 2, present prayer. Verses 3 to 5, future praise. Verses 6 to 7, abiding hope. Go over that one more time. Uh, Verses 1 to 2, present prayer. Verses 3 to 5, future praise, verses 6 to 7, abiding hope. Okay, so we're going to start with our observations on Psalm 67. Um, Psalm 67 uh, has a superscription, does not name an author, to the chief musician on Neganoth, a psalm or song. Uh, It is the third out of four anonymous psalms in book two. We talked quite a bit about that last time, so we're not going to go through all of that again. Um, The placement of this psalm and the connections that it has with the adjacent psalms, uh, again, suggests that same thematic continuity um, and at least that much, if not an authorial continuity, which generally is is deemed to be the case. Um, This psalm, though, a little unlike Psalm 66, it doesn't have quite the strong internal pointers that would point toward a, a more of a Davidic authorship. Um, so this psalm is a little little different in that regard. Um, could could have been um, written by David. I think there is some. I come across some um, traditional history that um, this was a psalm that that David. Uh, meditated on before going into battle. Now, I have, other than just saying that somebody in history has said that, I have no evidence that that's actually the case. But um, anyway, and there's really nothing, um, no occasion, nothing like that given, nothing mentioned that would give us any way of of dating the psalm. Um, you can see it's directed there to chief musician, the choir master, the, the uh, music director, whatever. Um it's called a psalm and a song, which is, uh, again, sharing that in the superscription with all of Psalms 65 to 68, this subgroup within this David group of psalms. 
Um, the term neganoth um, means a stringed instrument like a harp. Um, it has appeared um, several times. In fact, this word is used nine times in the Psalms. Two of those are outside of headings and are within the texts of Psalms. That's in Psalm 69, 12, and in Psalm 77, 6. Seven of these times this word appears, it's used in headings. Five of those t- seven times, they are David Psalms. So Psalm 4, 6, 54, 55, and 61. It is used one time anonymously here in uh, Psalm 67, and it is used one time in, in an Asaph Psalm in Psalm 76. So out of the five David Psalms that it's used in, three of those instances are in book number two. So uh, Psalm 54, 55, and 61. So could possibly be another indication um, to, to think that David is likely the author of the psalm, but again, not something we could be absolutely certain about on this particular one. There are two selahs in the text, one at the end of verse 1, one at the end of verse 4. Um, that's uh, Other than that, there's no other musical direction, um, and again, no occasion given. So to categorize the psalm, Psalm 67 it is a praise psalm. Um, I think it best goes in that category. We could possibly just be more general and just call it a prayer psalm. Um, it doesn't align real neatly with the, the praise type of psalm, but it, there, there has, it has calls to praise, um, which are really function more as predictions of praise than they, than they do necessarily um, direct calls to praise. Um, also, I would say that this psalm is, again, a prophetic predictive. It is a psalm that is looking past judgment on Israel and judgment on the nations, and it's looking to Israel being restored and the earth being restored and the nations worshiping God. So this is a, this is a very futuristic vision that is given in this particular psalm. The psalm does connect with the other David psalms, which begins back in Psalm 51, um, coming through um, to this point. Uh, It's also um, particularly connected with the subgroup, Psalm 65 to 68. And those connections are thematic. In in other words, the things that they treat of, they they refer to. Um, And it's it's also somewhat linear. So we've talked about the David group of Psalms, and we've talked about the Korah group of Psalms that started book two. And and when I say linear, I don't mean that they're like chronological order, but as you you read them in their canonical order, you you recognize there's development and there's a progression. So there's a repetition of themes as you move along, but there's there's also something to happen. So like in the Korah Psalms, you start out um, with laments and and um, distress and exile and, and abandonment and persecution and oppression and, and presence of enemies. And as you progress, you get to the king, you get to um, those nations being judged, ultimately those nations um, worshiping God, um, Israel being delivered. So there, there's that same kind of progression. And that's what we see in Psalm 67, in other words, continues to move that forward within this group. So the nations and the enemies that opposed God and his people, which in the earlier Psalms, um, most of the laments of David, um, that was a a very prominent theme, 
well, now that they've come to judgment and the nations over all the earth are praising God in this particular psalm. So the theme of universal dominion and worship, in other words, um, God ruling over the earth in, in the um, person of his anointed son, king, um, worship in his kingdom involving all of the nations to all of the ends of the earth, um, that, um, those themes in this psalm also connect it to other psalms that address the same theme. So um, a psalm like Psalm 22, verses 27 to 31, very messianic psalm. And as you get to the end, you have this same sort of, of victory and universal praise. But this has also uh, showed up in book two. So um, in the latter part of the chorus psalm, so like in Psalm 47, verses six to seven, you see this theme there. Uh, it's actually introduced in Psalm 51, the beginning of the, of the David group. And then it comes back later, Psalm 57, verse seven to nine. Psalm 59, verses 16 to 17, Psalm 61, verse 8, Psalm 63, verse 7, Psalm 65, verse 13, Psalm 66, verse 7. So more recently, and it will carry, it will carry forward also as it's anticipating um, what we could call the um, culmination or the, the climax of book number two. Um, it's anticipating that as well. All right, so um, poetic imagery for Psalm 67. So as you, as you read the psalm, it progresses from, from present to future to present hope for the future. So like verses 1 and 2 are more of a present perspective to the psalmist. Verses 3 to 5 then are future perspective to the psalmist. And then verses 6 and 7 are the future perspective that are giving hope in the present. For the psalmist, so it does sort of move along that line. Uh, uses a little bit of imagery. It's not loaded with a lot of imagery. Um, it uses uh, shepherd imagery. In fact, in verse number four, we'll talk about that um, when we get there. And harvest imagery in verse number six. So those are probably the um, main images that are used. The psalm does make use of repetition. Uh, you see it in the refrain of verse 3 and verse 5. You see it in the repetition of people and nations, uh, the repetition of Elohim, the name of, of God, a um, number of things that are, um, that are repeated. Um, and one other major um, structural sort of aspect to this psalm is that we have this alternation between us in verse 1, 6, and 7. So, the psalmist prays, God bless us and them, which are nations, peoples, what have you, in verses 2, 3, 4, and 5. So you've got this alternation between us and them. The us obviously um, being Israel, the them being the nations, um, the goyim, the ami. Uh, I think th uh, maybe three different terms actually are used um, for the different nations of the earth in distinction from Israel in this psalm. So you have this, this alternation, and what that does is that it connects what is being said, this, and what is being said about the nations, which is the future prospect. It connects what is being said about the nations with what happens to us, with the Israel. Um, so we'll, we'll see that more as we work our way through. Okay, so seven verses. Go ahead and read this. God be merciful unto us, and bless us, 
and cause his face to shine upon us. Selah. That thy way may be known upon earth, thy saving health among all nations. Let the people praise thee, O God. Let all the people praise thee. O let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for thou shalt judge the people righteously and govern the nations upon earth. Selah. Let the people praise thee, O God. Let all the people praise thee. Then shall the earth yield her increase, and God, even our own God, shall bless us. God shall bless us, and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. So verse 1 starts out, and it opens the psalm with a prayer for God's covenant blessing. So as you notice, the language of verse 1, the language of this prayer, it is echoing the priestly prayer, the priestly blessing from Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26, which is a covenant blessing um, pronounced upon the people of Israel. So this seeking of this blessing or this um, particular priestly, uh, sometimes referred to as the Aaronic blessing, um, it, it shows up a few times. Um, we've seen this language in Psalm 4 and verse number 6, uh, Psalm 31 and verse number 16, as well as Psalm 37 and verse number 6. So the, the actual request, the word for merciful that's being used there uh, could sometimes be translated gracious. Um, it's a word that describes bending down, stooping down. And so the idea is of someone that is superior, um, bending, stooping down to someone that is inferior in a way of showing mercy, in a, in a way of showing kindness in a way of, of giving help and that sort of thing. So this word for be merciful, God, this prayer, God be merciful unto us, this word is actually used 32 times in the Psalms. And 24 of those occur in prayers for God to be gracious. All the other times there are statements about being gracious or not being gracious but 24 of them are prayers asking for God to be gracious. And almost every request, when you look at it, this prayer, God be merciful, almost every request is made from some place of affliction or distress. Now, sometimes the source of that distress is named, such as enemies. So Psalm 9 and verse number 13, and Psalm 41 and verse 10, and Psalm 56 and verse 1, or instances of that. Sometimes this prayer for God to be merciful, the distress has come about by sin. And so it's connected with confession of sin, like in Psalm 41, verse 4, and Psalm 51, verse 1, here that begins this David group. Other times the distress is, is not quite identified, but it's spoken of in very strong terms, calamity and distress and trouble um, and grief and all that, uh, all those sort of very strong um, terms. Now, so there's no distress or complaint in Psalm 67. The point is that most of the time when this prayer is prayed, it is in the context of some sort of distress. And what that means is, as we read this here, this, this psalm's not a lament. This psalm isn't, uh, there's no complaint, there's no crisis, there's, there's no distress that is mentioned. But the prayer, God be merciful to us, has that implicitly in the background. Okay, so, so this prayer is 
praying for God to be merciful because it's needed, because there is a distress. There is a, and chiefly that would be um, the, the judgment affliction upon Israel. So seeking further, he's seeking God's blessing. He's seeking God's favor, um, the shining of the face. Um, the shining of the face is, is obviously the opposite of the hiding of the face. Uh, so the hiding of the face um, would refer to um, not hearing, not seeing. Um, it would refer to displeasure. Um, the shining of the face would refer to favor, um, hearing favorably and answering. And as we get to verse 2, we see the result of the covenant blessing of Israel. So it starts out with this prayer for this covenant blessing and gives the reason or the result of it in verse 2, um, that thy way may be known upon the earth. So in other words, God's mercy toward Israel in the affliction of their judgment results in God's way being known on the earth. In other words, the way that God deals with his people, keeps his covenant promises with them, and fulfills it is a way that he makes himself known throughout all of the earth. And that means all of the inhabitants. It's clarified um, there at the end of the verse by the term nations. So particularly, notice what is known there. It, um, one term here translated God's saving health, um, his salvation, his deliverance, his rescue, so it's God's salvation that is made known. And from what follows in the psalm, what we see being said here is that the nations experience God's salvation through his blessing of Israel. So God's um, covenant blessing on Israel makes him known and his salvation known to the nations on the earth. Well, then we move to verses 3 to 5, and this is where we get this refrain of future praise. So in verses 3 to 5, it's, it's futuristic vision, um, seeing what's going to happen. In other words, when, when God's covenant blessings come on Israel in fulfillment, God is made known throughout the earth, and His salvation has been shown to the nations of the earth. Here's, here's what happens in verses 3 to 5. So verse 3 declares the praise of God by the peoples of the earth. Now, it says, let the people praise thee, O God, and, and there's some, a little bit of difficulty grammatically um, as far as tenses and, and all those sort of things. But it doesn't seem to be, it doesn't seem to really be a command like the psalmist is, is commanding the nations to praise God, but rather it's, it's forward-looking to the time, and it's really more, of a statement of future praise. It's a declaration of how in this particular time that the nations, the peoples, will be praising God. And contextually, it's praise for salvation. Verse 4 shows us the communal praise of the nations. Now, we're used to seeing the idea of communal praise among the nation of Israel, and, and we're used to seeing that all the way you know, through the Old Testament um, and we're used to seeing that in the Psalms. But here it is communal praise um, from the nations as they are praising God. So when the salvation of Israel comes from Zion and God restores Jacob, Israel will be glad. Right? That's Psalm 53 and verse number 6. But here we see that not only will Israel be glad when this takes place, 
but the nations will be made glad. They, this looks to after that they have met God's judgment. So the nations are going to meet God's judgment. This is Psalm 59, verses 5 and 8. The nations will meet God's judgment and the wicked will be consumed. And after those, um, uh, those that remain, those that bow, um, they will be made glad. The singing for joy then um, of the community of the nations, uh, it's, it's a continued theme that we've seen, particularly in these David Psalms. So Psalm 51, 14, Psalm 59, 16, Psalm 63 and verse 7, Psalm 65 and verse number 8. Now it says that the praise of God, that God will judge the people righteously. And the word for judge is the word that means to rule over, to act as a lawgiver, to act as a judge. And the word for righteous here uh, literally means level. And so it has the idea of equity. In other words, God's justice is a true justice. When, when he um, reigns through the person of Jesus Christ from David's throne upon the earth, the justice in his kingdom will be a perfect justice. It will be a completely just, righteous justice. So it's, it's, he governs in righteousness. He governs in um, equity. And the word for govern that is the next um, in the last phrase, when governing the nations, is actually a word that means to lead or guide. And it is, a, it is a word that is often associated with shepherd and flock imagery. It's a word used in Psalm 23 in verse number 3 about the leading um, of the shepherd there. Verse 5 is a refrain that is repeated exactly from verse number 3. So then we move to verses 6 and 7. So this is the closing refrain. We see some repetition in these verses, but it's also an expression of confidence. So verse 6, we see the increase of the earth, and this increase of the earth, the earth yielding its, its increase, this is harvest imagery. This is, has the idea of you know, bringing forth um, bountifully and, and, and fruitfully. And it's anticipating the removal of the curse from the earth and the blessed abundance of the earth in the kingdom, which is also referred to in Psalm 65, verses 9 to 13. What this is is the reversal of the covenantal curses. So this psalm starts out seeking the covenantal blessing and then looks forward to that covenantal blessing, covenantal curses removed. So passages like Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy chapter 28 speak in these terms, that the, the covenant blessing that God is going to bring upon Israel, one of those things that has to do is going to be with the abundance of the earth, the earth being fruitful and productive and unhindered by the curse. And so that's what um, this imagery is looking forward to. And then it ends with verse number seven. So the covenant blessing of Israel leads to the earth fearing God. In other words, these things are inseparably connected. Just as we said, the us and the them. Um, the, this blessing coming upon Israel is connected. It is prerequisite. It is necessary to this um, rest, restoration of the earth as well as the nations to, to the ends of the earth fearing God. So what we're told in this psalm is looking forward to a time when the nations will know God's salvation. They will be made glad. They will fear him, meaning that these nations that are referred to will take refuge in the God of Israel, and they will find 
rest. Okay, interpretation. So Psalm 67 looks forward to the full blessings of Abraham as God promised to him. So Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, when God told Abraham, or Abram at the time, that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. And Paul actually refers to that in Galatians. Um, I think it's Galatians chapter 3 and maybe verse 8 somewhere. He actually says that when God made those promises to Abram, that he preached the gospel to Abram and, t- and telling him of his intention to justify the Gentiles by faith. So this promise to Abraham, all that extends to all the families of the earth, in him, in his seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So this psalm is looking forward to that fulfillment when all the nations, peoples, tribes, all the, the, um, those uh, inhabitants of the earth will worship the Lord. Now, the harvest imagery that's used in this psalm, harvest imagery is, is used particularly in, in prophetic writings and even in, um, in some of the um, words of Jesus in the, in the Gospels. Harvest imagery is typically associated with judgment and redemption. And we can see instances of that, like in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 13, uh, Matthew chapter 13, verse 30, and verses 40 to 43, some of the parables there. So the, the harvest imagery includes a violence imagery. So there's, there's the image of threshing and winnowing. And these speak of judgment on the wicked. In fact, even, um, even Psalm 1 and verse number 4 that began um, the Psalms speak about how the, the wicked are like the chaff that the wind will drive away. They'll be threshed and winnowed out. On the other hand, though, the righteous are like trees planted that are bringing forth fruit bountifully. So the, um, the, the violent imagery of the harvest relates to judgment. And again, this, is, this psalm is looking beyond judgment. Judgment is past um, in this psalm. So the, we have the reaping of a harvest. The reaping of the harvest is, is the gathering of the fruit. And not only can that refer to the abundance of the earth in terms of literal fruits produced by the earth, but it can also refer to people. So if you remember John chapter 4, what was it that Jesus told his disciples about the Samaritans? He said, don't say, you know, in so many months comes the harvest. Look up now. The fields are white to the harvest. He's talking about people. He wasn't talking about the the wheat in the field or the grain in the field. So as we see this imagery of a harvest, we realize that it it works on on a few different levels. On the one in this psalm, it, it speaks of the abundance of the earth um, bringing forth, but it also this imagery also gives us the imagery of um, the harvest of the nations. So this this harvest will not just be grain and and fruit and and that sort of thing, but of people of nations um, harvested as fruits to the glory of God. All right. So the messianic hope of Psalm sixty seven is 
seen through this glorious future vision when judgment is passed and the earth is populated with worshipers of God. So the nations in Psalm 2 that raged and plotted and opposed God are answered by God's anointed son king on Zion, who met the nations with judgment. Again, we saw that reference, Psalm 59, verses 5 and 8. And those who bowed to him enter his kingdom. The wicked are destroyed, they're consumed, and those that, those that bow, those that kiss the sun, as we saw in, in Psalm 2, they enter into this kingdom to live under his righteous judgment and rule. Well, the fruitfulness of the earth and the worldwide praise characterize his coming and his kingdom when Israel is restored. So I just want to draw your attention to a couple of places um, that speak of this same time. So like Isaiah chapter 60, Isaiah chapter 60, um, verse 1, Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, obviously speaking to Israel, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. Lift up thine eyes round about and see. All they gather themselves together, they come to thee. Thy son shall come from far and thy daughter shall be nursed at thy side. Then thou shalt see and flow together and thine heart shall fear and be enlarged because the abundance of the sea shall be converted unto thee. The forces of the Gentiles shall come unto thee. The multitude of camels shall cover thee. The dromedaries of Midian and Aphah and all they from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense. They shall show forth the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered together unto thee. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister unto thee. They shall come up with acceptance on mine altar, and I will glorify the house of my glory. Um, and he goes on and on and on, um, talking, about, talking about Zion and the coming to um, to Jerusalem, to Israel in that day. The book of Amos um, also, so that, so that speaks, um, Isaiah 60 in particular uh, went there because it's speaking about the, the gathering of the Gentiles, the, the in, incoming of the Gentiles um, in that time of that restoration of Israel, but also the, the fruitfulness of the earth. So Amos chapter 9, um, verse 11, In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen, and close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the, of and of all the heathen, which are called by thy name, saith the Lord, that doeth this. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes him that soweth seed, and the mountains shall drop sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt. And I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel, and they shall build the the waste cities and inhabit them and they shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. And I will plant them upon their land and they shall no more be pulled up out of their land, which I have given them, saith the Lord thy God. So just a couple of places, Amos 9, Isaiah 60. These are just a couple of places in the prophets um, and we could turn to others that are talking about this same time. Um, Psalm 67 is obviously a lot briefer uh, it's a lot more condensed, but you can see there's there's repetition, uh, use of some of this um, imagery and, and some of this thematic material 
um, linking these times together. So the blessings of the nations of the earth in Christ's kingdom is connected to Israel's receiving covenant blessings from God. And this is the same argument that Paul followed in Romans chapters 9 to 11. So Paul started out by talking about how that God's word to Israel has not failed just because there's a remnant. They majorly um, abide in unbelief and they're under um, judgment. God's word hasn't failed. They've been temporarily set aside and God will turn to them again and he will restore them. And if their setting aside has meant blessings to the Gentiles, Paul says, what do you think? their gathering, their restoration is going to mean, it's obviously going to mean even greater blessing. And we see some of that being alluded to here in Psalm number 67. Okay, applications. I have two of these. Number one, understanding Psalm 67 helps us today understand the future hope in the midst of present chaos. So the mood of this psalm is bright. Um, The psalmist is contemplating the future realities of God's blessings extending to all the families of the earth. And one of the the ways that we, we find that very hopeful presently is because all indication of the world around us are not going this direction. You know, it, the, the world is not becoming um, more and more progressively subject to Christ. The world, the world is not worshiping God more and more with that spreading. The nations are still raging and plotting and, and, and opposing God um, and, and taking, uh, you know, there is no justice and no equity in, in the earth. So all indications around us speak differently than this. But we can see how the psalmist, and we've seen David in other psalms and in some of the other different places, how that they have taken that hope. That is not going to overthrow God's plan or his promise. It's not going to overthrow his purpose. Um, and he, he will perform this word that he has given to Israel. As Paul said, it has not failed. Um, it, he will perform it without fail in his time. And when he does, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So number two, understanding Psalm 67 helps us understand the objective rationality of faith in God. Um, admittedly, this is a little bit obtuse, but it is, but it is there. Um, when we think about when we think about faith, for instance, sometimes people define faith as just a leap in the dark. And that's basically all that it is. It's a leap in the dark as if there were no evidence for God's existence or for God's character or for what's going to happen when we take that leap. Well, that is not a biblical view of faith. And it, and it can be seen in this psalm because God has given evidence. He's given evidence of who he is. 
and he's given evidence of his character. And if you think about what's being said here, God's covenant mercy being shown to Israel makes him known by the nations, and they experience his salvation throughout the ends of the earth. So in other words, faith is not a leap in the dark. God has given um, evidence and testimony of his existence and his character. And as we see this, we don't have words of judgment. This is, this is a glorious future vision um, when the world is worshiping and acknowledging God. So in other words, there are very real, objective, and rational um, basis for faith in God and for trust in his word. So even today, Israel's continued existence testifies to who God is and that his word does not fail.